This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 140. Today we speak about natural theology with Scott Oliphant and James Dolzell. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. We're very excited today to be broadcasting Christ the Center, episode number 140. We're going to be speaking about natural theology. We are broadcasting live across the world to Machen's Warrior Children, <laughs> wherever they may be, on uh, reformforum.tv in both audio and video. Of course, all of these will be available uh, after the fact on the website. But if you're privileged enough and excited enough to listen live and watch live, we are on the web at reformforum.tv. Today we've got a great panel uh, to discuss this very important topic. I want to introduce first our good friend James Dolzal, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary. Great to have you, James. Good to be here. We also have Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Systematics and Apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for coming over, Dr. Oliphant. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, today we're going to be speaking about something right up your alley, talking about Michael Sutta's book, new book, The Reformed Objection to Natural Theology. It's an important work, one in which he talks about many things that are very germane to the apologetic discussion, and uh, some things that have been debated, much debated for uh, hundreds of years in the Reformed tradition. So we're going to be marching through this book and discussing uh, various issues that we might have with it. Now, uh, before we get started, I do have some bits of news and uh, a few things to mention. Uh, There is a review of this book by James Anderson available at Themelios, uh, and uh, we may or may not get into his views on the book, but I will put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but also need to mention that Christ the Center, uh, along with all of our other programs here at Reform Forum, is listener-supported. And if you are able and willing, if you found benefit in these programs, please visit us online at reformedforum.org. And at the top of the page, there's a Donate Now button, and helpful, hopefully you'll be able to help us out. Any contribution is significant in our view, and it helps to produce these programs and to stream them and distribute them to people all over the world. So that's at reformforum.org slash donate. Thank you for your support of what we're doing at Reformed Forum. I also want to mention Reformation Art, that this uh, episode is in part brought to you, not only by your donations, but by our good friend Andrew Moody, who's at ReformationArt.com. And uh, visit his website, and you can find a bunch of prints and uh, other artwork that would be good for your office or uh, for your home even, uh, pictures and depictions of various people and events throughout Reformed history. That's at ReformationArt.com. All right, now we've got our house keeping taken care of. We've all got our books, our very expensive books, published by Ashgate. Uh, So these are the equivalent of golden pages. Uh, We're going to be (laughs) discussing Michael Suttis' new book, The Reformed Objection to Natural Theology. I believe this came out in 2009, maybe about a year ago. And uh, I want to kick this over to James. James, you had uh, reviewed this, or you're planning to review this. You read this for review. Um, What's your interest initially in the book or in the project of natural theology, considering your Ph.D. interests? Um, 
Well, the uh, the the work that I'm doing uh, on on divine simplicity is is largely it it's largely carried out under uh, under the terms or discussion of what you would call natural theology. Um, there's, in fact, one of the great criticisms of divine simplicity is that it just seems to be uh, underdetermined. Uh, John Feinberg says by by the biblical data, um, and so so I was really interested in the question of how how it is that something that seems a doctrine that seems so underdetermined by the biblical data, um, and and some have argued that certain verses teach the doctrine explicitly. Uh, I think that's a difficult case uh, exegetically to make to find an explicit uh, proof text of the doctrine. So how is it that a doctrine that is um, really arrived at by considering the entailments of other doctrines, um, at least in our knowledge of it, how, how, is a doctrine like, how does a doctrine like that become such a mainstay uh, in Christian orthodoxy from the time of the early church fathers uh, right down to the present? And, uh, I mean, it's, it's a mainstay in the church fathers. It, it is retained by Roman Catholics, uh, but also in the Protestant tradition, especially the Reformed, have have maintained that. And I was I was interested in the question in terms of the method of theology. What is the what what is a what is a valid method of theology by which you can articulate something like the doctrine of divine simplicity, mm-hmm. uh, which see which would be very difficult to open chapter and verse and say, see, this is where the Bible teaches it. Uh, I think also confession, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter one, uh, section six, paragraph six, talks about. Um, the things taught in Scripture, or, or by good and necessary uh, consequence uh, taught by Scripture. And as I was considering doctrines of good and necessary consequence, like the doctrine of simplicity, mm-hmm. um, I was interested in the theological method by, uh, you know, by which we arrive at those kind of doctrines. Exactly. exactly. And that raises the question, it does raise the question of how, what is the place of rational reflection, thinking about entailments, things like that when we come to doing dogmatic uh, theology. So my, my interest in natural theology was not primarily or initially sparked by apologetics. I think Dr. Oliphant could probably, and will speak to that, mm-hmm. uh, but my interest was, was initially in how the Church uses natural theology in its own reflection upon biblical passages. Yeah, that's helpful. Now, of course, we have uh, a, a few quotes. We need to define our terms. And uh, right along in the beginning of this book, Suddeth uh, has a few helpful quotes that I'd like to read. He says, In the broad sense, natural theology refers to what can be known or rationally believed about the existence and nature of God on the basis of human reason or our natural cognitive faculties. Then a little later, he says, Natural theology is more narrowly and perhaps more commonly identified with the project of developing arguments for God's existence, so-called theistic arguments. In this sense, natural theology attempts to reason to truths about God solely from what we know by way of sense perception, induction, intuition, and other natural cognitive processes. Uh, what, what Michael Suddeth does is he divides into two types of natural theology, natural Theology Alpha and Natural Theology Beta. James, could you maybe uh, provide a, a little definition or brief overview yeah. of Alpha and then uh, maybe any objections that may or may not be laid against Natural Theology Alpha? Yeah, very briefly, uh, he, I think it's essential. I think what he means by Natural Theology Alpha is what we mean by 
implanted knowledge. Sometimes people use intuitive knowledge. Um, I, th- I think implanted does a better job keeping the divine uh, action in focus, that, that God places a knowledge of himself uh, in man and that it's in man as man. Uh, and in a certain sense, it's, it's pre-propositional knowledge. It's not knowledge that is reasoned to through a syllogism or knowledge that is arrived at uh, through a series of propositions and entailments, and that's the the kind of things we might encounter in dogmatic theology. Yeah, um, it it's a it's a knowledge that it's a knowledge that is there, even if it's a knowledge, even if it's not there articulated in a certain form of words. Um, mm-hmm. And I and what Suduth does is he he's I think his general view of the Reformed tradition is that that is ne- that is nearly universally accepted. The objection to natural, the Reformed objection to natural theology yeah. that he's interested in uh, is not primarily against with Alpha. Against, it's with the Beta. Against Alpha, he he pretty much sees that as universally accepted. But what, if anything, can we do in natural theology beyond arguing for an implanted knowledge of God? Uh, via passages like Romans one, mm-hmm. um, can we can we then say that there's a, a can there be also in addition to a rational component? That's where he gets in into in his uh, natural theology beta. Uh, Doctor Oliphant, how might we distinguish, uh, or how might we be a little more precise on our terms when we're speaking about natural theology and natural law? That's another topic that comes up uh, often in in discussions. What are the two, and how are, how are they different? Well, I think um, natural law is a subset of natural theology. It's uh, it's Paul's uh, exposition in Romans two that um, that the law is written on our hearts, and it has to do it has a distinctively ethical component in that sense, and it comes in the way that Paul describes it. There uh, comes by way of God's general revelation. Um, so, in that sense, I see natural law as a more specific uh, example of of natural theology generally. That's helpful to know. And who are some key figures here in the whole natural theology debate, uh, either pro or con? Uh, Maybe in the history of apologetics, Dr. Alfie, you just edited with uh, Bill Edgar a whole series on readings uh, in apologetics. Did you find much uh, discussion on the topic of natural theology there? Yeah, there is there is a good bit. It's um, you know it it sort of reaches its apex, obviously, in in uh, in medieval period. with Thomas, who who himself uh, got uh, some of his material from the Muslim philosophers earlier, um, but um, obviously in the early church, um, arguments tend not to be as philosophically oriented. Partly because people are having their heads chopped off, uh, so there's not a lot of time for reflection. You, they're, they're, that's an apologetic that goes to the emperor really and says, you know, you need to be consistent with your own uh, testimony if you're going to call yourself pious, then why are you killing people for this sort of thing? And then by the time you get to the medieval period and things in that in that sense have calmed down a little bit, then there's time for more reflection, and mm-hmm. um, I think that's when you get a more fully developed uh, notion of natural theology. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, it, it's interesting to, just to see this whole doctrine and how it has played out over uh, really thousands of years, uh, and the apex perhaps, at least being in the scholastic period with the dumb ox, <laughs> could, could I, affectionately called. Could I ask Dr. Oliphant a question then? Sure. Just as you did the readings and put those together, were the, uh, Suduth is primarily interested in what he calls reform, reformed objections, and he identifies a whole variety of different objections of different intensities. But is there, 
it, was there um, also a what we might call a Catholic objection to natural theology? Were there those in the medieval uh, times who were who were resistant uh, to even say what Thomas was doing or some of the others? There tended to be, but it was primarily located more with the mystics um, because of the uh, the opposite. You know, if you if you look at kind of the the um, the history briefly, you see Thomas Aquinas developing his his philosophical theology, and then and then who's the next? Uh, who's the person that occupies the the chair of Aquinas at uh, at the Sorbonne? It's Meister Eckert. And and his you know his first reaction is um, God has to be beyond being. So you get you you have a, a very much a kind of uh, mystical element coming into the discussion. I think Eckert, in, in my view, had some right analyses of what Thomas was doing in places. I think at that point in history he was reading uh, Thomas correctly in many ways, not always. But then I think his reaction was uh, was the wrong reaction instead of turning to more to uh, a kind of sola scripture idea of, of revelation, which he could have done, even though it was pre-Reformation. Um, he could have done that. Instead of doing that, he went right into the God beyond being idea, that, um, that, that the only way to get to God is that he's got to be above and beyond being, and that, and right. that your, your best approach to God, even as Eckhart says it, is not to understand mm-hmm. rather than to understand. So that's a kind of reaction natural theology that you get in a, in a sort of heightened philosophical climate. Mm. Do we find at all when the Reformation came, uh, you mentioned the issue of sola scriptura, um, but did the particular Reformation doctrines change the church's, or at least the Reformers' view of natural theology? Did they alter uh, their understanding, uh, given what the church's understanding of natural theology had been through the Middle Ages? Yeah, I think very much. Um, there, there was obviously a synthesis going on. Um, you, you, there, there was no rejection in toto of, of medieval theology at the time of the Reformation. There were, there were some uh, significant uh, revisions and some rejections, but no rejection in toto. And Muller makes the point that the uh, – I think it's, this is about uh, his language that the single most important development was epistemological mm. with the Reformed and the Reformed Orthodox, and, and that I think um, – uh, speaks to much of what Suddath is is trying to do here when he talks about a reformed objection because he he does include that that um, era of the Reformation, sixteenth uh, seventeenth century, and uh, and borrows I think heavily and rightly from Muller and from uh, Platt uh, primarily, and and I think he's exactly right in in terms of the epistemological. Um, sea change that took place at the time of the Reformation because of the emphasis on Revelation. Now, whether or not he's, he's applying that you know, throughout the book is another question, but he does see, uh, I think, the radical uh, shift that's taking place at the time of the Reformation. That's helpful. Well, what is the Reformed objection? Asadith uh, spends his time on three big parts, uh, natural theology and the immediate knowledge of God, this part three is sin and the Christian reconstruction of natural theology, looking more at the noetic effects of sin, which would be perhaps the one that many Vantillians would go to first. Uh, and then part four, the logic of natural theology. If we dive into part two here, natural theology and the immediate knowledge of God, James, why would the Reformed object to natural theology given an understanding of 
well, the immediate knowledge of God. I'll first say that Suduth, with his first chapter, really lays down that the notion of the Reformed objection to natural <laughs> theology is a misnomer. I think he's, I think he's, do, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek with the title of the book, uh, especially with his definite article there, uh, because uh, not only is there not a universal objection to natural theology, um, the objections that are there are hardly uniform, and a lot of his book is showing. Uh, is showing varieties from from reformed uh, perspectives, but in terms of in terms of the question of the immediate knowledge of God, uh, two objections potentially come up that he identifies. The first is that that um, natural theology alpha, what he which he calls that implanted knowledge of God, um, makes natural theology beta that sort of reflect that sort of cognitive reflective, um, contemplative, theologizing uh, based, on, based on data in nature um, or, or in conscience, it, it, makes that, it makes the deliverances of natural theology beta irrelevant, meaning, yeah, they may be tr- uh, nat- you know, it may be true, you may have reasoned through all these things and come to these conclusions that God is this or God is that based on your observations of nature. And yes, uh, you know, you, you may be right, but it, it's it's entirely irrelevant and time uh, poorly spent because you already have the knowledge of this God implanted. So because you have an immediate knowledge of God, we don't need to seek a natural knowledge of God beyond what's already implanted. Uh, we can just say, look, we've got the implanted. Let's go. Let's go do biblical exegesis. Um, we're not, you know, we're not going to do, we're not going to do reflective theology based on, uh, you know, conscience or laws of nature or this type of thing. Mm. Um, that's the softer argument. The The stronger immediacy argument is what he calls the exclusive immediacy, mm. EI. He does a lot of the little kind of plantiga-type formulas. Every, everything is reduced to a sort of analytic formula for Saduth, which is difficult at the outset, but if you can catch on to what he's doing, it, it becomes helpful as a shorthand. The exclusive immediacy argument is that because, because every person has the knowledge of God already immediately implanted, um, it, is, it is impossible, not simply irrelevant, um, but impossible that we should seek uh, natural knowledge beyond that. What he essentially does, though, in identifying these arguments is he, he basically looks at all the objections um, and says, and comes basically to the conclusion that no one in the Reformed tradition is really arguing consistently that that we cannot or should not do any sort of reflective theologizing, um, and he does that through evaluating a number of different uh, a number of different critics. Mm. So that's that's the sum of the immediacy argument. Uh, Can I? Um, do you mind if I just gave a little background to what? what no, he's doing go ahead. Because I think it's important, at least, to put this in context. This this book, like everything else, didn't uh, come in a, into a vacuum. Um, the title itself is is planning us, um, planning, right? From planning his it, article, well, from his initial uh, address sure. to the Catholic Philosophical Association, which became an article. Uh, the address was in 1980. The article in '82, okay. um, and and what what planning was trying to do, I think it's important to see because Suddath is working on a corrective to this, which which I think planning I would agree with, um, given his endorsement on the book. But what what planning was trying to do initially in his reformed objection was to show that um, uh, uh, people like Bavink, uh, he, he liked to pick Bavink, um, Calvin, obviously, and then depending on, on, he wrote 
about this in various places, and depending on the, the chapter or the article, he would throw in Kuiper or Bart um, on occasion. Uh, his, his concern, planning his concern in, the, in his initial development here in the 80s was to try to set forth uh, what, what he's now done in his warrant book, but to try to set forth uh, that belief in God is properly basic. That's a response uh, arguing that is a response to the so-called evidential objection, which really uh, was the uh, was the predominant view in philosophy and analytic philosophy, and that is that you can't believe in anything at any time without sufficient evidence uh, for that belief. And planning is trying to show that can't be the case because there are too many things that we believe uh, for which there is not sufficient evidence, and by evidence here he means propositional evidence. That right. is, you, you, you can't develop a uh, inferential argument, and he he argues that in uh, in God and other minds, and then he he moves uh, in in his epistemology uh, to uh, toward uh, what he called initially a reformed epistemology, meaning that he as he argued it, uh, Bavinck, Calvin, all these guys were saying. Uh, in, in various ways, what Planning is saying, and that is that belief in God is properly basic or can be properly basic. That doesn't negate inference. It just says that inference is not needed for rational belief to be there. Now, I think what um, there's a lot that can be said about that. I don't think Planning has the Reformed tradition right. I don't think there are a bunch of Reedian foundationalists, uh, <laughs> e- even if anachronistically, um, because there's too much going on there to, to, uh, to kind of paste um, them onto a philosophical context. But I, I do think what, um, what Suttoth is doing and, uh, and, and doing well is taking that challenge, is there a Reformed objection in natural theology, taking that seriously and trying to put together what really happened historically and now how do we think about this philosophically. Um, just a couple of things to say about that. In, in, in my read of the book, and this is just a personal, uh, personal opinion, when I start reading Natural Theology A and Natural Theology B, I find that um, unhelpful. And I recognize analytic guys do this, and they want formulae, and they want to, they want to be able to, to denominate things, and, and I've done that in some of my writings. But just say, um, just say implanted knowledge of God and natural theology. You don't have to do alpha and beta. Yeah. I just don't understand why you have to go through all that um, uh, locutionary stuff that to me doesn't, doesn't help, because then you're saying, well, with natural theology beta, but not a natural theology. Mm-hmm. Just say implanted knowledge. The other thing, <laughs> the other thing I think is, is probably, I'm a little tentative here, but I think this is probably a little too clean in the book. He makes a, a, pretty, a pretty significant distinction between um, cognitio incita and cognitio acquisita, that is, implanted knowledge and acquired knowledge. Uh, one is sort of immediate internal. The other is more inferential and external. I don't think Paul's making those distinctions in Romans 1. Um, it doesn't mean that acquisita can't be inferential, um, but I don't think it necessarily is. And I think when, when, uh, when, when Calvin talks about, for example, uh, at the moment you open your eyes, you see the, the majesty of the Creator, um, that's meant to be an imme- there's meant to be an immediacy there by virtue of what is external to us. So, so I think Paul's argument in Romans one is fairly seamless, and that is that there's knowledge of God internally and externally, both of which are non-inferential. The acquired can be inferential, and Suttoth agrees with that. But I think the distinction is a bit too hard and fast uh, between you know what what he sort of denominates alpha and beta, and um, I, I think when you begin p- part of the Part of the issue, if I could ramble on for just one minute, I think part of the issue here 
And um, this runs both ways, but oftentimes philosophers try to make um, theology philosophy. Uh-huh. And sometimes theologians try to make, I understand that, but um, trying to make this argument uh, more philosophical than it is, I'm trying to be tentative here, can result in some lack of clarity and I think some some misapplied yeah. um, concepts and terms. That's helpful. And I see that in his book. Now, that's not so much a criticism as it is to say, if you're going to do this, join with a theologian to do that. Let's you know do this together mm-hmm. rather than just make a philosophical argument for what really is a theological problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I see I see Suddath doing that. Now he's very fair. I don't want to impugn anything here, but um, there's just there's a lot of discussion uh, about things in a philosophical way that I think if you make it theological, it's going to be clearer. Yes, clearer. Um, than than the analytic uh, philosophers uh, are sometimes. So, um, I I think that's that's one of my criticisms. I would I would have preferred more theology here. Well, it's interesting, especially because many of these arguments they have to be based on exegesis of scripture, and it's difficult just to do analytic philosophy uh, when uh, when we when God's special revelation is is necessarily at stake here that we have to be taking our cue from there. And maybe that's part of the issue with uh, understanding the role of natural theology, uh, its relationship to to special revelation. Um, how would you see uh, maybe from Van Til's perspective and 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 even your own? Um, the relationship between the two, even before yeah. we go any further. Yeah. See, th- I mean, I think that's that's that is the question, and um, w- one of my I- I'm interested in this. I haven't asked uh, Michael this question. And I'm sure he has a good answer because he's very um, he's very uh, precise on these things. He doesn't approach anything casually. But why did he pick the interlocutors he did in this book? Because most of them are fairly obscure. Um, I mean, in the historical section, he gets that because he, he, you know, he depends on Mueller, so he's got he's got some of the central guys. But by the time he's getting at the reformed objection, yeah, I think there are one or two mentions of Van Tillen here. There's a mention of Clark, um, but you know, then he's into Massalink and uh, and and Lesurf and yeah, Ho- Hoxima. Yeah. He's getting guys that now part of his answer would probably be, well, I'm getting guys who are the clearest and therefore you know extreme in these views, um, but. Um, yeah, I would have. I would have wanted to see uh, more interaction with sort of centrally reformed ideas. I mean, I've been in the reformed tradition a long time, and most of these guys are about as peripheral as you can get. <laughs> not, I'm not yeah. saying that as a critique. It's just they don't they don't yeah. factor yeah. into names. Don't come up very often. Yeah, they don't factor in, into courses. large discussions. <laughs> right. The the other thing I think you know back to your question is um, to to what extent is revelation itself a deliverance of reason, if I can put it that way. And I think in, a, in, a, in my context in which I work, it has to be centrally located and not peripherally located. And it's not just the case that reason reflects on revelation. That certainly is. The, but reason has nothing to offer except by virtue of revelation, hmm. so that it doesn't even exist as a uh, substantive entity unless God is acting to reveal naturally and specially. And 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 that see that doesn't play into a into a philosophical context no. because at that point everything reason does is uh, fundamentally dependent and and at no at no place independent. Now Sutta does a nice job of showing you know how how these 
things tend to interact. But revelation is not given a place with sense, experience, and reason, all these, which it needs to be if we're going to talk about natural theology, I think, fundamentally. And because of that, while Suddath agrees, and I think he does a nice job here, agrees that, um, that, the, that uh, Romans 1 teaches that we have real knowledge here and not a capacity. Yeah which was my initial critique of Plantinga when he came out with this, and he, as far as I know, he, he hasn't changed that view. Paul's not talking about a capacity there, and neither is Calvin. He's talking about real knowledge. Sadat does a nice job of affirming that. But then you've got to ask the question. You would be forced to ask the question then how that knowledge relates to the sort of formula ad nauseum of justified true belief or warranted true belief equals knowledge, even if, if, as Sadath says, in degrees. How does, how does that formula, warranted true belief equals knowledge, fit in with the fact that the, that, um, that the uh, census divinitatis is knowledge? Do you get there by virtue of warrant and truth and then belief, or is it something more foundational yeah. that grounds any other view of belief uh, acquisition? And, and to, to, yeah. to sort of to sort of just kind of speak in those terms, I can see why he does it, because he's a philosopher and he's, and he's a good one. But you've got to set, sit back for a minute and say, wait a minute, objectively, is this really the way to speak, given that I've already said that the census divinitatis is knowledge, and even in some places, as he acknowledged, is immediate knowledge. How does that fit now with a, with a, 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 a knowledge formula that the analytic guys like to throw around, of justified true belief plus Getty or codicil, or warranted true belief plus, you know, whatever else we have to throw in there mm-hmm. in terms of design, plan, et cetera? Did, did you get the sense <clears throat> that sometimes he moved? It, it seemed to me that the line between what counted as knowledge and what didn't was really arbitrarily drawn. I, that was not, not, not that I understand that some convictions become firmer with contemplation and reflection, that sort of thing. I, under, I understand this kind of intensity, but I, I was a little mystified as to how he could speak so freely about a definite line at which something acquires the status of knowledge um, w- without ever, ever telling us how we would know where that line is. Yeah. Seems very seems highly subjective in some ways. It it is subjective, and I think if you ask um, if you ask planning or yes, they'll say, well, you know, this 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 point hasn't been developed yet. We haven't gotten there, and um, you know, I'll I'll go to my grave. They won't get there, yeah. and then they just <laughs> yeah. won't get there. But uh, and that's why all epistemologies like this are, as planning says, a first approximation, or you know, we're talking about degrees of warrant. Uh, warrant is, uh, you know, that property uh, enough of which along with truth. Well, what do you mean enough of which? Is it two more data bits of knowledge? Is it another half? Is it a point three? Is it a higher probability? Are you at point eight instead of point six in probability? Nobody knows and nobody says because they won't be able to. And yet you sort of set forth this formula as this is what knowledge mm-hmm. is when what you ought to say is we don't know what knowledge is, but we're talking about it like this. It's a precise uh, <laughs> formula that's based on something that can't be quantified at least yeah, by us. Yeah, or if it can be, they're just saying we, we don't know how to do it. And yeah. yet this is, what, this is what everything is supposed to sort of submit to in order to be what the philosopher will approve. And, you know, I think there's a reason. Let me try to put it this way. I think there's a reason why in Romans 1, Paul's not concerned to tell us the mode of how you get to the knowledge situation with respect to God. I mean, Scripture just says, you know God, uh, and you know him by virtue of what's been made. That means by virtue of everything that is, you know him. 
and he makes sure that you know him, and it's his activity. That So you're not going to get to a place where you say, well, does it mean, you know, if you open your eyes twice? Or what about, you know, the person who's blind and deaf? Well, you still know yourself. So, you know, Scripture's not concerned about that because Paul's making it universal. Everybody knows, and everybody knows by virtue of what's created. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes to make this, to try to make this more precise than it is, is to, is to veer away from what uh, the actual teaching is of what Scripture's trying to tell us there. Now, um, you say everybody knows. We know that Scripture tells us very clearly that everyone knows God. They reject the truth or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That being the case, why do not all people walk around acknowledging God? Uh, the category that we pull in and the, the understanding we know is the noetic effects of sin, the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. A sin has not simply come into the world and condemned us and, and polluted us, but it also ha- extends uh, throughout the entire man to affect his own thinking, his reasoning. Uh, and, and now there's an absolute ethical antithesis between those who are regenerate, those who believe in Christ and are united to him and have his spirit, and those who are not. Uh, an absolute ethical antithesis between those who are united to Christ and those who are united to the first Adam. So let's bring this now into the four, uh, part three here, sin and the Christian reconstruction of natural theology. Where does Suddeth go in addressing the objection to natural theology using uh, the noetic effects of sin, James? Um, I mean, he, he, wrestles, he wrestles with the whole the whole question of how of how sin affects knowledge and i think he's you get the sense that he's really that he's really striving to give it a fair shake from a sympathetic reform perspective um but again he this is just one and it's 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 worth reading and it's a careful read but it doesn't he doesn't read far enough at least as as the way i read it in terms of of terms of what we're saying are the noetic effects of sin 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 doesn't Sin doesn't simply impair the capacity of knowledge. So Suduth gets concerned about things like, like scope of knowledge. They still have true knowledge, but just not as much as before. Uh-huh. These type of questions. To me, that the the the, the total the, the total depravity question um, when you when you talk about it in terms of quanta gets gets confusing. Uh, in, in as much as he he misses. He seems to miss the point of the whole ethical hostility dimension of the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin don't only impair the mind; they they also uh, they also contribute to the mind's active hostility to the truth. And that, in, in my opinion, in section three, that's the that's the that's the big black hole uh, in his discussion. Exactly. Is I I would like to have seen him actually deal with with the whole question of active suppression as the default mode of unregenerate man. And that's why we say absolute ethical antithesis. Yeah, and this is the book the book is I'm going to I'm going to give it credit for actually dealing with the issue of sin, but in in terms of the antithesis um, the antithesis if it's here te- tends to be muted and weak with us with this discussion of impairment, which is a valid discussion, but without the antithesis you're probably not you're probably not looking at the situation as it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's right. I I, um, I, I just want a couple of things because I don't want to. You know, this is a quick show. I don't want to be seen to be highly critical. I, I think this is the best thing out on this discussion, and and it's uh, it's it's well worth reading. And he has parsed things in a way that no other philosopher has done. I like his distinction 
between a project objection and a model objection in natural theology. And his yeah. conclusion is there's no project objection. He's exactly right on that, in my opinion. Um, there are model objections, and those have to be discussed. And that's kind of where he goes in terms of the uh, in terms of noetic effects of sin. He also acknowledges, this one's a little puzzling to me, although I can see why he would want to do it, because you have to fill pages, but he acknowledges that <laughs> Bart is outside the Reformed tradition. Okay, that's beyond what most philosophers will do, and that's a good thing. He's right about that. <laughs> but then in the Noetic Effects of Sin, he goes through the Bart-Bruner debate. Now, that's a famous debate, but it's a famous debate among neo-Orthodox guys. It has nothing to do with Reformed theology. Well, he throws Bart in the Reformed uh, camp in the beginning when he's laying the land. He does, but he says he's outside yeah. of it, too, in terms yeah. of his theology. He acknowledges that, and he's He's careful to do that, so I, I'm, I'm happy that he does that. But why throw in neo-Orthodox guys who are responding to Reformed? I mean, in some ways you can almost see it, um, but, it, you know, those guys don't fit. You know, there, there's nothing in the low side of systematic theology that they would agree with. The other thing I think is important here, and here's where I think Suddath has, has, uh, has helped us a little bit. Let, you know, in terms of noetic effects of sin, um, Think about it in terms of a presentation of the gospel. You, you come to a person who's totally depraved, and what are you going to say to a person who's totally depraved? You're going to say that they, are, um, that they have sinned in, in the sight of God and offended him, obviously in various ways, but we're just talking about content here. They've sinned in the, in the sight of God and offended him, and, and, and that Christ has come uh, to resolve that problem, and because of his death, uh, the sins of his people are, are covered, and therefore it is up to us then to repent and believe. Now, when you... When you articulate that, are you saying by articulating that, well, this person isn't totally depraved because they understand everything? Of course you're not saying that. They are totally depraved, and yet they can understand what you're saying on an intellectual level, and by the Spirit of God, they can understand it on an ethical level. Now, if you, if you translate that into a natural theology project, you can use the same kind of data that is used oftentimes in natural theology with the affirmation of total depravity, recognizing that what you're doing is the same thing you're doing in a gospel prayer. You are appealing to that which people already know to be the case, exactly. and then adding to that the revelation of, of, uh, of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, um, Suddath, uh, James is right, he's kind of taken this on in a way some, some haven't, he hasn't, I think, hasn't given it the radical structure that it needs, that is the absolute, not, not just, not metaphysical at all, but absolute, I think, covenantal, as you say, ethical, Van Til's word, antithesis, that people are either in Adam or in Christ, and there's no third place to be. And because of that, then, all that, uh, all that we do are, are meant to do in, a, in apologetics is communication of the truth, just like in gospel communication. Mm-hmm. And we can do that by way of natural theological arguments as long yeah. as we recognize that what we're appealing to is the census divinitatis and not some neutral notion of reason. Well, let me advance then to the next section. We can come back if we need to in any remaining time on the noetic effects of sin. But speaking of natural theological arguments... Uh, perhaps some of the most famous apologetic arguments are, are, are these. Uh, we think of Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways. Uh, Bob LaRock is going through those on another one of our programs, uh, Philosophy for Theologians, and uh, the second way is up on the website now. What is the efficacy of natural theological arguments or theistic proofs uh, based on natural theology? James, I'll let you take this one because you have some thoughts. I thought, well, I thought it was an interesting section. I might say that the way he closed section three, uh, chapter eight, on the dogmatic model of natural theology, um, I just would want to say, for all my critiques of his treatment of the noetic effects of sin, I thought 
chapter eight was a home run in terms of actually actually uh, arguing that we can do natural theology from within the standpoint of faith subjected to scripture. I, I felt like he gave that um, a, a fair a fair hearing, and on that part, I was you know I'm excited. Once once you turn the corner into the apologetic consideration of of what what do these arguments do in what he calls a pre dogmatic function. Right. Uh, that is to say, not not faith reflecting on the datum of scripture, or even faith reflecting on on you know conscience or nature, but but uh, confronting unbelief with with uh, natural theological arguments. What's the you know what's the effect? And this is where his this is where his warrant stuff again comes back in the book, um, and he and he wants to argue that. An interesting argument. I'm not entirely settled on what to make of it. He he argues that some of the reform critiques against the apologetic or pre-dogmatic, let's call that even pre-faith use of natural theology in terms of arguing with the unbeliever. Um, he he wants to say that that some of the critics have expected the arguments to do too much. So he makes a distinction between. Um, he makes a distinction between whether the arguments are a foundation for belief in God and whether they are are reasons for belief in God. And he would say there's a difference between reasons for belief in God and basis for belief in God. He draws that distinction, and I'm not I'm not convinced that he's wrong. In fact, he may be right, and I I I, I found parts of it helpful. I think my Vantillian intuitions were to check it, you know, to question it. But I think if if what he means is that he's arguing from the reality of the implanted knowledge of God and saying that you have an implanted knowledge of God, the basis, the basis or foundation of your knowledge of God is a knowledge, is the fact that God has already put it in you and made it inescapable that everything in creation, everything in yourself, everything in conscience bears the impress of God's self-revelation inescapably. If he's saying that that is, if he's saying that there's an immediacy to that, natural theology alpha, but let's just not, let's just drop that and say, the implanted <laughs> knowledge of God, um, then, the, then the theistic arguments pre-dogmatically don't—his argument is they don't have to function as the foundations for theistic belief. God already laid the foundation through implanting. Right, that's taking, my, that's my most charitable way of reading what he's doing here. Um, and he's a little—he's critical of people like Robert Raymond and Greg Bonson, and, uh, and he looks at their criticisms of Thomas's arguments, and their criticisms are— uh, a, it's not a str- it's not a strong foundation for you're trying to lay a foundation for faith that's too weak to be a foundation. You know, the one any one of the five ways isn't isn't enough to be a foundation. And then it's the second argument that though well, these conclusions that you arrive to uh, about God in these in these five ways or however don't really don't really deliver or yield the full Christian notion of God. And that's and that's a problem. You just have a deity or an an anonymous deity, and that's somehow sub-Christian. And I I think at this level, when when Sadduth questions that, and he questions that by saying, is it is it anti-biblical or is it simply not yet fully uh, uh, trinitarian? Or you know, I mean, he he begins to question: at what point does something true about God not count as Christian if it is indeed true? God is the first cause. This sort of thing. Uh, or, or the unmoved mover is God the unmoved mover? Is that anti-biblical? This is his question. Yeah. Um, and I, his his conclusions are, it it's not anti-biblical, and to argue it for those that already have an implanted knowledge of God, it may be. And this is his 
planning a speak, a defeater of their defeaters. You know, they have a defeater argument in their mind. God, that, God can't be because of, you know, whatever. Right. And, his, and his argument is, well, given that they have an implanted knowledge of God, couldn't we come in with one of the theistic arguments? And though it isn't, though it isn't enough for a foundation of belief in God, it's, it's enough to at least serve as a defeater of their defeater argument. I, I think it gets a little, again, I, I think it gets unnecessarily confusing, but I'm, I see I see what his argument is, but again, I'm I'm I can only be sympathetic to it in as much as I put a very strong sense on implanted inescapable knowledge, which to me is to me is getting into the transcendental argument, which unfortunately doesn't yeah, deal with. That's my question here. I mean but, if you listen to the great debate, that that famous debate between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein, Gordon Stein starts off assuming Greg Bonson's going to start using these theistic proofs. And if you mention the theistic proofs as defeater defeaters, then Stein offers defeater defeater defeaters. Yeah, and that and, and just you can just you can just start cramming in as many hyphens as you want, and, and then the the conversation like goes endlessly. And I think what like Van Til's looking for is he's looking for he's looking for something that will shut the shut the mouth of unbelief yeah. in the in the transcendental set. Not not in the sense of a super smart argument, but in the sense of of uh, of calling people to. Calling, right. c- confronting, un- confronting unbelief uh, with the implanted knowledge, and that confrontational level is where Sadduth doesn't go. Um, but he calls those arguments weakly, epistemically efficacious, uh-huh. so that they don't have to be the foundation for faith, but they can be defeater defeaters. Um, I'll, I'll give it a, I'll give it a seven point five on the on the persuasiveness. Uh, but there, I'll, I'll <laughs> let Doctor Oliphant. Uh, well, we say we we know that uh, our belief in God does not rest upon a decision that we or a, an argument or a syllogism we hear, so that if we are given another one, that we uh, lose our faith uh, necessarily. But I wanted to ask Doctor Alfin about the methodological uh, implications, as you say, and the transcendental method, and the transcendental argument. Do you find that as the most persuasive, the most uh, biblically faithful way to argue? or to apologize for the existence of God, or is a, a natural theology, theistic argument okay if it works? And should we just do that? And if it doesn't work, then we move to the transcendental method. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I, I think that I think Van Til's transcendental approach, obviously, is just, just simply put, uh, Christianity is true and anything opposed it is false. And so um, the way that you work, it's the impossibility of the contrary. It's impossible for anything that opposes Christianity to be consistently thought or consistently lived out. Now, to me, that's a statement, and it's an approach, but I, I'm not with the, the folks out there who want to delineate that as a kind of strict logical method. Mm. Now, on the other hand, I think that, that, that natural theology used properly fits into that. For example, if you have a revelational epistemology and you want to approach someone with something like the design argument, you're talking about the way in which the world works and, uh, you know, take, take Behe or anybody, irreducible complexity or anything like that. The best you've got in those arguments, apart from Revelation, is therefore there must be something bigger. Okay, great, there's something bigger. Anthony Flew believes that, he dies and he goes to hell. It's More not like Anselm. It's not helpful. All his arguments. They yeah, don't say it, much about what God is rather than just arguing for something that's out there. You've got to be able to connect that to what God has done in terms of revelation. And if you say, I don't, again, I'm not 
articulating the proposition you say, but if you include in your argumentation the fact that the only way we know this about God is because he reveals himself through this design, God is revealed through the design we see, it's a natural um, implication then to move to special revelation. And oh, by the way, not only has he revealed himself through this, he's revealed himself through this book, and in this book, sort of like Paul did with the philosophers, uh, he's appointed a day in which he will come to judge, and he commands that all men everywhere repent. Now, how do you get to Paul at Athens, look at God, and I know who he is, and he doesn't need anything? How do you get to that, to Christ? Paul does it seamlessly because he starts with revelation even though he's talking about God's existence in the world. Now, all of that, I think, can be incorporated into a transcendental approach because what we're saying is there's no other way to account for the design you see or to know that you know the design that you see apart from God revealing it to you. And then I think revelation becomes the foundation, the basis, and that's something you don't see in any, in any philosophical and a lot of uh, theological works. Revelation's got to be at the center and the focus of your natural theological project because it's at the focus of God's activity in nature and in Scripture. I would like to have seen him do some work on uh, nature as authoritative divine revelation. Uh, I think that would have been... I'm thinking of Van Til's article um, in the... The Infallible Word. Yeah, in the Infallible Word um, where he where he makes that argument that that uh that nature itself is nature itself is re- is revelational is perspicuous is authoritative um it's i think if you could back up your natural theology with that kind of view of reality that that all of that all of it is di- is divine revelation um and not make the distinction between truths arrived at through the contemplation of nature and truths, truths arrived at through revelation, like you find in a Thomistic scheme, I think, I think that, that that kind of division uh, undercuts the efficacy of the use of natural theological arguments in apologetics. And I, I'm, I guess I'm not saying that Suduth concluded against it. I'm not, I don't know. He didn't, it, it wasn't uh, as clear. And I understand that might be beyond the scope of his work, but I think it would it would put some real backbone in it as far as its usefulness to uh, maybe presuppositionalists. I think following up on that, too, um, Van Til doesn't mention this specifically, but I think it fits. I think we have to affirm and say, like uh, Scripture, that God's revelation in nature is infallible. And that yes. means that we have infallible knowledge. And, and I think that's, that's the, you know, you, you start there, Take the Cartesian project. I need a clear and distinct idea. Here it is. It's knowledge of God. You've got it as a foundation. You've got it. It's coming from the outside in, so it's not purely subjective like Descartes was. But then what happens? You suppress it, and that's where the mess comes in. Yeah. That's why you, have a, you make a mess of knowledge because of the suppression of the, the knowledge of God. But if you start with revelation in that way, then I think you have an epistemological project that's worth, worth doing. And that's where when you know, the defeaters come in, people saying, well, it's easy to say that. That's where in the methodology it's helpful to use the transcendental method to say there's no other way the world could exist as it does except according to uh, the God that's revealed himself in nature and in Scripture. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, um, I've talked before about Van Inwagen's admission in his book on metaphysics that no no philosopher's been able to come up with anything cogent. 
It's the same thing in epistemology. And I, I think if there's any evidence of the impossibility of the contrary, look at the history of philosophy. They still don't know the three main areas, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. They have nothing to offer. I shouldn't be that. But they haven't said anything <laughs> conclusive in any of those areas. They have a lot to offer in terms of depth and that sort of thing. But nothing conclusive, mm-hmm. no conclusions made in any of those after 4,000 years. That sort of screams impossibility of the contrary to me. Yeah. No, that's helpful. And of course, uh, we're just about out of time and we've only scratched the surface of this book. If you're able, uh, pick it up. Uh, it's by Michael Suddeth. That's S-U-D-D-U-T-H. Uh, the title is The Reformed Objection to Natural Theology, uh, lifting that from Alvin Plantinga. And can, I from, say, can I say one more thing? Yeah, please. I, yeah. I think in the spring I'm going to offer a course with this title. Great. So that's an announcement. So you can come. I'll probably use this book. It's a scoop. It's a scoop. Yeah. It's wh- wherever you stand with Saduth, he is. He, he will give you ways to think through this issue with more subtlety and carefulness than you probably have before. I, I, I think it's a. I think it's overall a great book. Yeah, we very much appreciate uh, the book. Something he's worked on for a long time. Yeah, uh, I believe his his DPhil dissertation in '96 was the the, the roots for this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, it's helpful to have this book, and I'm glad it's out, and it's it's timely. We've been discussing these things, and uh, if we, we'll, we'll hopefully follow up on this discussion with uh, some more discussion on natural theology, maybe some more on natural law, and also a revelational epistemology. I can't think of anything uh, better to talk about on philosophy for theologians than that, uh, or even Christ the Center. Well, I want to remind people, uh, you can visit James online. He's got a lot of stuff at uh, reformforum.org, and you can uh, visit. Uh, he's starting to publish all over the place. He's turning into no. a, a regular prolific no. reviewer and whatnot. But Better finish his dissertation yeah. before he too much. <laughs> don't say that. I have my, my doctor father here, and I don't have a dissertation submitted. <laughs> well, and uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant, of course, professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's written several books and articles as well, and I'll name two that I think you should go out and buy the first is Reasons for Faith, uh, which is discussing much of this. In part two of that book, you can you can find more of uh, Dr. Oliphant's sustained treatment. Uh, another, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, which is more of an introduction to apologetics, and I'll give you a bonus. He's also edited uh, the latest edition of Cornelius Van Til's Defense of the Faith, which uh, all those are available, available from uh, Presbyterian and Reformed publishers. So take a look at that. All three of those books are well worth having. You should have them on your shelf. Uh, we're, of course, available at reformedforum.org, and our latest site, reformedforum.tv, is live and available, and we broadcasted this live, and it turned out well. Nothing blew up as uh, last time. <laughs> and uh, so visit us there, and you can watch this live. If you're listening on the podcast, uh, take a look and uh, see what we look like. <laughs> Maybe you won't want to do it again. But uh, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>